0: Well, good morning, again, brothers and sisters and friends. I hope that you all are are well, and and like always, it is so good to to see you. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 2, and we'll be continuing Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 11, in just a moment. We've already looked chapter 1 and into chapter 2. And a couple of things, reminder of what we've seen. Number one, we've seen how the requirements and the blessing of the creation mandate from, from Genesis 1 and Genesis, Genesis 2 is being continually fulfilled, being fulfilled there in, in Exodus chapter 1 and into chapter 2, that they are to be fruitful and multiply. But what we see is we see Moses, the writer of, of Exodus, He links this creation mandate and this promise through Abraham with God's plan of redemption in Exodus. I also want you to see so far in these first one and a half chapters overwhelmingly the sovereignty of God that is on display in God's word. The growing of a nation. Right, They were once a family. They are now growing into a nation. They're multiplying so much that, so that as we see in verse 8 of chapter 1, that there's a new king in Egypt. And this new king, he did not know Joseph. Right, And you can go back and listen or read that to know exactly what that means. But he didn't know Joseph, and so this king would oppress Joseph the Hebrews, the Israelites, because he did not know them and wants to control their population. He enslaves them. He wants to destroy their children. And yet, in the midst of all the plans of this seed of the serpent, we still see the mighty hand of the Lord. Let me remind you how. Look how throughout chapter 1 and in chapter 2, you see how frustrated Pharaoh gets. Pharaoh gets frustrated because his plan is not being done. So he oppresses them even more. And yet the people still multiply. He tries to stop them from having children by telling the Hebrew midwives, right? These, these, these women to, to, to kill the baby boys, right? Again, like this is a, this is a, a fear tactic. Right? A fear tactic. Kill them or we will kill all of you. And they fear God rather. And these women, slaves, outsmarted and deceived the seed of the serpent. So We see this restoration taking place, this great reversal taking place that God is working as he brings about the redemption of his people. So he gets worse and he wants to throw all the baby boys into the river to kill them, to stop their multiplication. But like we talked about last week, Moses' mother and father and sister are used to thwart his plan. And Moses is is saved. They save Moses by putting him in a a baby-sized ark and send him down the river. And and Moses then is drawn out of the the reeds by none other than, than Pharaoh's own daughter, Pharaoh's own daughter pulls Moses out of the river and and, and saves him. So here's all these, these, these women frustrating Pharaoh's plan. And Moses is then raised right under the nose of Pharaoh. And because of Pharaoh, he gets the best education that anyone could receive at that time. You see, the more ruthlessly Pharaoh dealt with God's people, the more they multiplied. And the more we saw God's deliverance. It's almost as if God was using Pharaoh to accomplish his plan, because he was. Again, overwhelmingly, we see God's sovereign hand over history and the salvation of his people do we not get hope from that? Does that not give us hope and comfort and assurance? Because we can trust and believe that God is still working out all things according to his plan and for his purposes, for his glory, and for our joy, just like we read in our 1689 confession this morning. Let's look to Exodus chapter 2, and we'll begin reading, starting in verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came to draw, drew water. Came and they drew water and filled the troughs to water the father's flock. And shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home, their father, Ruel, said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and drew, or even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and called his name Gershom. For he, was, for, he, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came to God, came up to God. And God heard their groanings and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and knew, and God knew. This is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. An interesting passage indeed and story. Because it seems, reading chapter one and beginning of chapter 2, that things were getting better. And then all of a sudden, they don't. Between verse 10 and verse 11, there's clearly a huge gap of time. And what we see from this gap of time between verse 10 when he was a baby to verse 11 when he is a, a grown man is that we understand that even in this huge, massive situation of God's people in suffering, that there are no quick fixes. Of course, we certainly can fix some things in a jiffy. Some of y'all are talented enough to to be able to do those things and understand how those things work and how to fix certain things. Some things take longer when you have to go run to the store no project is complete unless you've gone to Lowe's at least two, three times. You need parts or you need education. You're searching YouTube to fix it. Maybe you have to call someone to come help and they can come and do the job. These days it seems like the list of the things that we used to be able to do as quick fixes is shrinking. What used to be easy is no longer a quick fix. It's no longer quick. It's not something that you could just do in a hurry. Machines are far more complicated. Parts are unobtainable. And one thing I've learned from our engineering friends is even our engineering friends get stumped too. Parts are hard to find. Labor's hard to find. Things are difficult to figure out. Everything's expensive. These are days that we're certainly not used to when it comes to fixing things. Because there are really no quick fixes. And we know that Moses, the deliverer, will be used to deliver his people. If you're familiar with with the, the narrative of Scripture, you understand that Moses will be used to deliver his people. God will use him. But the story, as it progresses, this fix does not happen overnight. It's not happening just in the very next verse. Verse 11 is pointing us to this gap of time as Moses, as a baby, grows up. And we still see, we keep in mind the hardship of his people. Moses goes out and sees in verse 11 the the hardship of his people. According to Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verse 23, he tells us that Moses was 40 years old, a young man, 40 years old. And then in verse 16, when Moses fled to Midian, we also know that he was in the land of Midian for another 40 years. By the way, if you didn't know this, Moses' life is split up into three segments, 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in Midian, and 40 years as the deliverer. But however you slice it, 40 more years in slavery is a long time to wait for this solution to be delivered from slavery. If you had a contractor come to your house and you wanted to do a remodel, And he said, yes, we can do it. We can make it look great. We can do everything you need to do in your budget and even probably make it better. But it's going to take 40 years. Now, if they were honest, that's probably what they would say. But that would be unacceptable to us. We would want to go out and find another contractor because 40 years is a long time. After all, it's most of my life. So by the time Moses grows up, he lives in Midian. And then in chapter 3, when he's called back to go back to Egypt, we know that Moses is 80 years old. This means that a a whole new generation has been born into slavery. Another generation has probably passed, passed away. And this generation has been born under the same threat of death upon them and then upon their own children they grew underneath that threat for 80 years but also another generation also having the same expectation that God would deliver them and yet it would seem it would seem as if God had God was doing nothing where are you god And all the while, the Deliverer is living the life of Raleigh in Egypt. And then having a family in the wilderness in Midian. And there is no quick fix here. There's no easy way out. Doesn't it seem that way sometimes in life? And in suffering. There is no quick fix, No matter of what doctors sometimes even promise. Or others promise there's no quick fix. Even when Moses is called to the burning bush, things do not get easier. In fact, it gets a whole lot worse. So what the book of Exodus is making us do is it's making us face reality. And the reality is that, the, the, that what is prevailing and continuing in this life is darkness. And darkness is often part of our experience. Yet while at the same time in Exodus as there seems to be this, this blanket over us of darkness, Exodus pulls the corner of that curtain or that blanket up just a little bit so that we can see that the story is still going on. A popular verse during Christmas is Isaiah chapter 9. And particularly verse 2, it says, The people walked in darkness until they had seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has shine, has light shone. Now, now definitely, we know Isaiah is explaining the plight of, of God's people, that they're in darkness and sin and death, and we understand that Christ is the light. He is the light of the world, and he shines upon us, and he gives us truth, and he gives us grace and salvation through his light, through this light. But even this verse is looking back to the darkness of, of all each, of all the world, and even in Exodus, where this curtain has descended upon the people of God. And even though this whole process seems so slow, 80 more years of slavery, 80, 80 year more, uh, years more slavery, we still see in Exodus that curtain being pull, pulled back just little bit so that we can see, so that they can see just a little bit, a little glimmer of light, because soon the light will come and it will shine greatly. We want quick solutions. We want quick fixes to our problems. We see in our passage this morning that that is exactly what Moses wanted. He wanted a quick fix. He wanted to solve the problem. And sometimes the Lord does answer our prayers pretty quickly. And he gives us the desires and we are satisfied. But for the most part, he doesn't. And so in those times, like the people in Exodus, like Moses, we are faced with a demand. Demand to to preserve and uh, persevere, excuse me, in faithfulness. Persevere in obedience and impatiently and await as the scriptures tell us the coming day. So this morning I want to show you three things how the Lord has prepared Moses, but in turn he's preparing us. We see how Moses receives a dose of reality. Moses goes to school again, and lastly God's timing. In verses 11 through 15 we see how Moses, now all grown up, gets a dose of self-inflicted reality. How many of y'all know how that feels? And what he finds out quickly, that these are the last days he's going to have in Egypt. And he doesn't even know it until he returns back as an old man. In verse 11, Moses grew up, he's 40 years old. And it says he went out to his people. And what we understand here is clearly in that time between verse 10 and verse 11, as Moses grew up and was educated, that Moses even then was, he had a sense of who he was. That though he grew up in the palace of Egypt, he understood that he was truly a Hebrew and not an Egyptian. Now, how do we we know that? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. But most likely, Moses probably still had some kind of relationship with his mother and his sister. And even knowing and having a relationship with them, he was reminded of who he was and the great stories and the great things that take place of God's delivering his people before and saving his people. And so on that day, what did he do? He went out and he looked on their burdens in Acts chapter 7. And Stephen's sermon. He he tells us more about uh, more about it, and that he says that Moses not only, <clears throat> excuse me, knew that he was Hebrew, but he understood and he believed one way or another that he was called to be the people's deliverer, and this is why he came out to them. That's what that means. It wasn't just he showed up, walked out one day. But no, he came out to them, knowing and believing I am their deliverer. His heart was with his people. His intent was to do right for them and to lead them into safety. So here is this relatively young Moses. He grew up in the court of Pharaoh, the greatest of educations, this life of luxury and privilege, and he shows even still his love for his people. The book of Hebrews chapter 11 puts it this way in verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured in seeing him who is invisible." Hebrews doesn't tell us the embarrassing details of Moses here. And Hebrews is is presenting Moses as, at least in this part of his life, right, as this hero of the faith for his his cause is actually Christ. How he turns back from sin and, and he identifies himself with the suffering of his people. Is the writer of Hebrews looking at Moses with rose-colored glasses? Is, it, is he missing something here? And I don't think so, because when you look at Exodus 2, we definitely see a very imperfect Moses. But we also understand we see Moses in his very imperfect, sinful self. He still loves his people. He loves his people, he goes out to them. He looks upon their burdens and literally looking upon their burdens as going out to them and then seeing this one particular thing happen, he experiences a life-changing thing and it literally changes the course of his whole entire life. It completely changes. And in fact, what it does, it sets him then on a course to deliver God's people. Moses, yes, he had some lessons to learn, and we're going to talk about some of those. But it's becoming more and more obvious that God had chosen him to lead his people. A man. In fact, a man who prefigures as a type of, again, as we talked about like last week, as Jesus Christ. Moses points us to Christ. As Hebrews tells us, Moses suffered the reproach of Christ. In Exodus 2, we see Moses identifying himself with God's people in their suffering in order to bring about their salvation. Has not Jesus Christ done the same thing for us? Entering himself into our situation in order to deliver and save us. In Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, chapter 10, we are told that that God has accomplished everything, all that we need in our salvation through the suffering of Christ. That his sacrifice on the cross is perfect once and for all, and it is completely finished. The wrath of God is completely satisfied. And so when we hear the Bible make these remarks that we are united to Christ in the suffering, we also also know from Hebrews 2.11 that it says that that is why he is not ashamed to call us, them, his brothers. We are siblings of our Savior. We are brothers and sisters of God the Son. And Moses here, he condescended. Right? He condescended from the from the throne room of Egypt, condescended to his very own people to do what? To join his brothers. But the supreme condescension is not Moses. The condescension that we look to is the condescension that God gave us in Christ Jesus. For God himself, Jesus Christ, joined himself in our humanity. And for what? So that we might become members of his family. So that we might be called children of God. And so when Moses went to be with his people, what did he see? He saw their burdens. And then specifically, his eye was was caught by an Egyptian taskmaster who was was beating a Hebrew to death, literally. And this, this isn't what we would call a fair fight. And Moses doesn't look at the situation with indifference, does he? Clearly, he doesn't. He doesn't look at it with indifference as, ah, it's just another slave. But he sees it, and he he takes action. Just like in verse 25, we we hear how God sees the people of Israel. Just like in in Genesis, we we see how God sees uh, uh, Hagar in her plight. When she feared that her and her son was about to, to starve, she sobbed and she prayed, I cannot watch my son die. And what does God do? He sees and he answers her prayer and he provides. In Genesis chapter 22, God saw the the need of Abraham on Mount Moriah and he acted and he provided a substitute to be the sacrifice in place of Isaac. For God to see literally means in the Hebrew that God provides, Yahweh Jireh, that he provides. Now, Now this is to show to us that Moses is acting like God's deliverer here and how God's deliverer should act. However, verse 12, what does he do? He strikes down and he kills the Egyptian. And then he buries him in the sand, which should instantly, instantly tell us that something is not right. The murder of the Egyptian taskmaster, though may be justifiable in the defense of another's life, and we can talk about that. We can, we can certainly debate that. But however, it is quite foolish for him to think that getting rid of one Egyptian was going to smooth everything over. And then his brothers would instantly see him as the deliverer and savior. As we see from verse 13 and 15, we see that it did, that didn't happen at all. In fact... It made everything worse, didn't it? This action of killing this Egyptian made everything worse. Look at verse 13, because Moses comes back out to his people and he sees another situation where there is another struggle, but this time it's between two Hebrews, his own people, and it says it, his own people. And again, Moses, sensing the call of of to be this deliverer and to be this judge and this righteous lawgiver, he He confronts the man who is in the wrong to to correct them. Now, the response of this man who's beating another does sound pretty familiar, I think, to many of us. Verse 14, he says, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? He sounds like a petulant child, doesn't he? The petulant child that says, you're not my mom. You're not my dad. Or how about these days, the spoiled adult who says, stop judging me. Yet he still straights out questions with impunity, Moses' intent and authority. You're not our judge. You're not our prince. You may think you're a Hebrew, but you're not one of us. And then the man lets the cat out of the bag, doesn't he? And when the cat gets out, it terrifies Moses. He basically says, are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian? This is an indictment. And basically it's saying, why would we trust you, a killer, to deliver us from another killer? And plus, we know what you did. We we know what you did. Your crime is known. Verse 15 tells us that even now Pharaoh hears of it. And he searches after Moses to kill him. How could Moses think that he could single-handedly overthrow the power of Pharaoh and also convince the Hebrews to follow him? little naive, but this was a dose of reality. What's clear here is that although Moses thought he was ready, he wasn't. And yet what we also still see is that God is preparing the man that they needed. The leader that they needed, he must understand the trials that they are going through. He must have the patience to bear with his people. Leading God's people, as we know, you you know the story. Leading God's people is not going to be easy and what we see in Exodus and throughout is that God's people continually reject Moses. They continually reject Moses' teaching. They continually reject God. They accuse them just just a little while outside of Egypt, after these amazing, miraculous things that they've seen by the power and the hand of God. They accuse them, "Did you just lead us out here to die?" And yet, even though Moses, he understands the sense of call, he clearly had zeal, which is good calling, zeal. But a lack of the knowledge of the divine power is his massive problem. Moses was trying to save them on his own, rather than save them by the strength of God and by the grace of God. It's going to take God to deliver his people. It's going to take God to, to rule his people. Even Moses, 40 years old, he's impressive. He's intelligent. He's capable. He's strong. He's skilled. He's talented. He's intelligent. He's accomplished. He clearly had power, and he had, and he had influence But as we see from this passage, he learns really quickly, none of those things are going to save the people of God that he now identifies with and loves. And what Moses is learning is that it's going to take God himself as he uses a humble servant. It's going to take God himself to be their judge and to be their ruler and the one that goes before them. And doesn't this same principle that Moses is learning, this dose of reality, is it not a dose of reality that we need to continually learn? Brothers and sisters, even even the unbeliever here this morning that may be here, we place no confidence in the flesh for our salvation. There is no confidence in our flesh, in our willingness, and in our being to save ourselves, meaning there are no quick fixes for us that we can do that is meaningful at all. There is no self-help. There is no amount of moral conformity to get your life straight. There is no transformation that you can do that will truly change you, that will truly conform you and transform you into What you want to be. Even at our best. Even at your best. You cannot save yourself. The Apostle Paul who had every reason to put confidence in himself. Had the Torah memorized. How many of y'all know at least the Ten Commandments? Three, four, five. Six, you know, all ten of them. He had the whole Torah memorized. He is varsity level, your little league. He had every amount of confidence that he could place in the flesh, the education of all education. He was trained to be one of the greatest scholars and, and leaders in, 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 in Israel. Probably even better than Moses himself. And yet he understood that nothing he had accomplished could ever add up to any kind of righteousness that could save him. In fact, he says this in Philippians 2. He says, whatever gain I had, I accounted loss for the sake of Christ. So all the stuff he had listed, he lists earlier. Whatever gain, all of that stuff, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Do your own word study on the word rubbish. And you understand how serious he's being, that word rubbish, because it's not just trash in a trash can. It's refuse. I count it all as refuse. Refuse. In order that I may gain Christ. All these things that made him awesome before man, where man was like, yeah, Paul, get it, Paul. He counts as rubbish. Why? Because it's useless. It's the flesh. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. This is what Moses is learning. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, because the flesh is useless. But that wish that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Brothers and sisters, the, the dose of reality for us is that there is nothing that we can accomplish in the flesh that will ever do anything to build or give you salvation or righteousness before God. There is nothing you can do. This should be a reality check for us that our salvation and our righteousness is only in Christ. He is it. Even now, your good works does not give you righteousness in Christ. It's him. He says it. He done it. He accomplished it. It's finished. It's done, sealed, stamped, delivered in God's book. You're there. Reality check. Dose of reality. Only God Himself can save by His grace, by the faith alone that He gives us to believe. How did He get there from Moses? Hebrews 11, Acts chapter 7. But in these next verses, 16 through 22, we see what happens next, and that is Moses gets this reality check. He's not ready. His whole life pretty much crumbles. His once um, grandfather, step-grandfather, now wants to kill him. And Moses goes to school, and this is the school of, of life, he left himself no option but to go into exile and to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. In verse 15, Moses fled Egypt and he stayed in the land of Midian, which is probably around the Sinai Peninsula, which is moving into the land of Canaan. And when he got there, it says that he sat by a well, probably a pretty welcome sight to see a well. And there at the well, even better probably for him, were seven women drawing water. And that is the tradition of the Middle East, that the women would gather at the well and, and draw the water. And yet we also see the story how there are some shepherds that come to the well, and, and basically what they do is they try to take the, the water from them, the water that they already drew up, and bring their sheep in to drink the water from their and And as we can see, the story is showing us that these are thugs, these are bullies. Probably one of the only times in the Bible that actually puts shepherds in a negative light. I don't know if y'all realize that. But once again, Moses is confronted with another injustice, isn't he? Where the strong are taking over the, the weak. And he steps in again, but this time no one dies. He drives the shepherds away and... And the women are able to keep their water, and then he finishes up drawing the water for them, all that they needed. And these women, the girls, they go home, and their father, Ruel, also known as we know as Jethro, and he's surprised, hey, why are you all home so early? And this is what they say in verse 19. He says, "They, they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, even drew water for us, and watered the flock. Isn't it interesting that they call Moses an Egyptian? But what's more important is that they say that Moses delivered them, which throughout the book of Exodus, throughout Exodus, we understand that this is what God is doing for Israel. He's delivering them. But also, Moses does what? He, he serves them, doesn't he? He's serving these, this family. And so what do we need to get from seeing here in, in Moses when he is in the wilderness. First, we see him learn how to dispense justice a little bit more justly than just killing. Second, we see Moses serving and learning to serve and learning to lead, which as we see throughout the Bible, that this is God's good design of leadership, which is perfectly displayed in Jesus Christ that who did not come to serve but to but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many and that serving and leading went on into verse 21 when Moses gets married he marries one of Jethro's daughters and the multiplication continues they have a son named Gershom and having children that becomes its own school, doesn't it? And Gershom's name, which sounds a lot like the Hebrew word sojourner, he says, I have been a sojourner in foreign land. So what is Moses doing in this foreign land? He's learning to identify with his people. He's learning to identify with his people, not just by his race alone, but identify with them in their suffering. Whether he knew it or not, God has taken Moses to school, and this school is in a wilderness as a sojourner. And the Lord's education to him was was to prepare him, and God does it in a couple different ways, right? We already started talking a little bit about it through his living situation. He's in the wilderness. This isn't the best place to live. This isn't Southern California or South Florida. Or the Gulf Coast of Florida, right? This is the wilderness, i.e. the desert, barren place. However, it is in the desert where we see or understand from the Bible that this is where Jacob saw the stairway to heaven. It is where Elijah heard the still, small voice. It's where John the Baptist preached repentance and where Jesus won his first triumph over the devil. It was also in the wilderness that... Paul searched the scriptures for Christ of the Old Testament. We see that in Galatians 1 17. But long before that, Moses went into the wilderness to do what? As we will see in chapter 3 to meet the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Lord was educating and preparing Moses. Also through his new family. He gets married and he has a son. And we don't know all the domestic details of his life, right? Moses' family situation. But yet it was also in preparation for his ministry. As a husband, he learned how to love and serve his wife. As a, as a father, he learned how to care and discipline his children. And by settling into the, fa- into the family life, Moses learned how to be this servant leader. It also would not be far-stretched to say that Moses even received spiritual instruction from his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, Jethro. Which, by the way, the Midianites are distant cousins of the Israelites. For they came from the fourth wife of Keturah. If you didn't know that Abraham had a fourth wife, he did at the end of his life after Sarah died. And she had Midian. And lastly, we see how the Lord is educating and preparing him for his work because Moses became a shepherd. They were shepherds. In Genesis chapter 46, it tells us that the Egyptians thought that shepherds were detestable. A little irony there, right? He had to learn what from being a shepherd, that sheep are difficult to lead. This is is an illustration that we see throughout the Bible, don't we? Shepherds and shepherds and shepherding and sheep. Sheep sheep are hard to lead. Sheep wander. But even though they seem to be independent, reality is, is that they're not. They're not independent. They are completely dependent upon their shepherd. And God uses the experiences of Moses along the way through his spiritual journey to prepare him for the special work that he has for him. And by being faithful in these small things over these next 40 years, four decades, God is preparing him to do something big, as we know. Who would have thought that God's plan of redemption involved sending Moses into the wilderness? Who would have wrote that story? But he does. And Moses needed to lose his status as an Egyptian. He needs to understand what it feels like to be a sojourner because guess what? He is going to lead a very stubborn people like sheep who will be sojourning through the wilderness to the promised land for the next 40 years. Life in Midian for Moses for 40 years was like being in school for 40 years so that he could clearly understand that a task that is set before him and then also to Uh, help Israel understand their calling as God's people. And though Moses ran off because of his unbridled zeal to be a leader, the Lord sovereignly puts him in the wilderness for his good, for his people's good, and for his glory. Now, hopefully, logically, this is starting to make sense. Because from this side, thousands of years later, with lots of hindsight, right? We have lots of hindsight here. And we can say, amen. We believe in in God's providence and his sovereignty to lead his people and lead Moses in this way to 40 years in the wilderness to be educated. And we can believe that God truly works all things out for his glory and that we can be amazed by that. We amen to that. But what about when we are in Moses' shoes? What about when we are in Moses' shoes that of just doing life? We're wondering what happened. Or or maybe worse, if we had to be in the shoes of the Hebrew slaves still still in slavery and wondering if another generation would just die in slavery or if God would ever send a deliverer. Maybe some of you are in the wilderness right now, or it seems like you're in the wilderness right now. Maybe some of you are about to head into the wilderness and you know it, or you don't know it. Or maybe by God's grace, you're about to come out. Or even if you're not in the wilderness at all, the lessons here are still the same. And the lesson here is even in the long things of life, in the long time of life, God is still at work. And his plan never fails no matter what happens. And ultimately we know because he has already sent his deliverer to us. We're not waiting for him to be delivered. We have been delivered if you are in Christ. And our deliverer is not Moses. God sent another deliverer, the deliverer, Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. And he has sojourned with us. And he is our helper through the wilderness. Brothers and sisters, in our time, in the wilderness or not in the wilderness, he is preparing you. And what is he preparing you for? He's not just preparing you for this life now, but he is preparing you for all eternity. Because just as Moses was being prepared to lead this people to go to the promised land, so is Jesus Christ preparing us to go into his promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. And that's why, again, pointing To Paul, he says, I can count everything as loss. I can count everything as loss. He can call this suffering light and momentary because it's preparing him for something that is eternal and lasting. God sent Moses to school and the Lord takes us to school as well. And lastly, as we've already seen at the very beginning, that the whole span of this whole timing is about 80 years. And so we see God's timing in God's timing. In verse 23, we see the the irony. Verse 23 the king of Egypt dies, and we do not mourn him, he dies. It's funny about this in chapter 1, chapter 2. Only mention of two people dying is the Egyptian that Moses kills and the king of Egypt. But this didn't end the suffering for Israel as we see. It continued with the next king. And in these last two verses, as they... And in, one, in many ways, they contrast us to the, to the previous verses, because humanly speaking, what we see in there is Moses trying to act out in his own, right? We see him trying to act out in his own and then just failure, right? Humanly speaking, we see this, this failure, and then what does he do? He's fleeing again from this king. But in verse 23 through 25, we are brought into, into a place what is truly effective, what's truly sufficient now now we don't know if the people of god cried out before this probably i'm sure they did but this is the first time recorded that they cried out to the lord groaning groaning because of their, their suffering. And we don't need much to understand that, that description, do we? We, under, we understand that. And if you've ever been there or heard that, you understand those, those kinds of prayers that are, that are made, those prayers in, in groaning. And I love these verses here because we see here that Moses, he is by, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He is such a good writer, He's such a good writer because he's, he's again, bringing us into this epic, epic, epic change that is about to take place in Exodus. Because verse 24 and 25, very short, but very straight to the point. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew Now, why I think Moses is such a a great writer, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but what Moses is doing, he is helping us to understand something that is so marvelous and so mysterious, he has to write it in a way so that our human minds can, can comprehend and he writes in a way so we can we can understand this. We call this anthropomorphic language. He takes what we can understand and he applies it to God so we can understand from a divine perspective what God is doing. And he uses words like God hears because we hear. And he it says God remembered. Why? Because we remember. He says, we see because God sees, or God, he says, God sees because we see. We can understand and know because he does so. And when he says God remembered, does that then mean God had forgotten before? Like, oh, geez, we forgot about these people I left in Egypt. Like forgetting the buns in the oven. No. It's not something he's just remembering in the nick of time. And we understand that from scripture because it's impossible for him to forget. I love Isaiah 49, 15. It basically says this, is that even though a woman may forget that she has a child or even a child in the womb and deny that it's a baby, he says, even though women may do that, God will never do it. He never forgets us. And he makes this, this comparison to them. Just like a, a mom could never forget these things, he will never forget us, even so. And so this language that he's using is depicting an unforget, uh, unforgetting God as though as if he is capable of forgetting so that we would understand the marvelous effects of the prayers of his people and having to remember. Our, our prayers are so delightful to his ears and even in our suffering and in our pain and in our groaning that he has, again, condescended his eternal, sovereign, providential work in a way that we can comprehend and we can understand. Let me illustrate it this way. Not a perfect illustration, but sometimes children can be very particular concerning concerning things, right? They can be very cont- particular about certain things, and they can get real excited about things, and they really want their parents to remember that this is going to happen. Like, it's my birthday, it's just, or I want to be with my friend here, or that. Now, the breakdown in the illustration, as parents, we forget, or sometimes we, we forget. But children often remind, remind us over and over again about things. In fact, something really cute happened. Lydia wrote a note on a on a, a little piece of paper and stuck it to a magnet on this little thing we have. And, and it said, it said, Mom, text this person to, to remind her or ask her if, if, if her daughter could come. She didn't write it like that, but if her daughter could come and, and have trick-or-treat with her. And we know that. She's, already, she's been asking this over and over to us. And, of course, as parents, what we say to our children, even though they're asking us over and over, we say, thank you for reminding me. And this is God saying, thank you for reminding me. Because he already knows. He hasn't left them. He hasn't abandoned them. But as a heavenly loving father, he's saying to his children, I remember, I know, I see, I hear. And the the delay in the, in the deliverance, he knows. Just like maybe it's not the right time for me to text the friend or to do these particular things as parents and God in the same way. It's not the right time for me to do this. And he has his sovereign purposes in doing so. Number one, we just learned Moses wasn't ready in the, in the wider arena of geopolitical events and, and things like that. God's in the world, God was still working in Genesis chapter 15. Then the, in the covenant that God had made with Amber and the promises that he made with him, he said his family would become sojourners in a foreign land. That's Egypt. And that they would be slaves for 400 years. Here it is. It's happening. But he also says he would judge that nation, Egypt. And he's going to. We're about to see that in Exodus. And then he's going to give them all the wealth of Egypt to take out with him. We're going to see that. But he also tells Abraham the timing. And he says the timing will be the fourth generation. And he also says, and when the sins of the Amorites is complete meaning God has his purposes that even they can't comprehend. The sin of the Amorites, of the people of the land of Canaan. When God sends his people out, he judges Israel, and he judges the Canaanites. But their sins are not complete. But here Moses tells us, he says, the Lord hears, and he remembers, and God knows I love what he says that he hears his people when he speaks and this speaks volumes to us because of psalm 34:15. listen to this this is such a sweet verse the eyes of the lord are toward the righteous and his ear toward their cries isn't that wonderful that he sees and he hears us and when he sees he acts he remembers, and, and thankfully, brothers and sisters, what he remembers about his people is not their sin. He remembers his covenant. He remembers his, his promise with his people. And that is the unbroken promise of salvation. And in this new covenant, he sent Christ to be our Savior Because God, he remembered what he had promised. He promised a redeemer that would come and set us free from our slavery to sin. A son who kept the whole law for his people. A lamb who would take the punishment for our sins. And from beginning to end, our salvation, as we've already said, it depends upon God remembering Our standing with him, brothers and sisters, is not determined by our works and by our flesh or by our sin, but only by the righteousness of Christ and the covenant in his blood. And God knew. He knew all about them intimately, personally, and understood the details of their life and their suffering. And as for us, We have such a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses in every respect, but yet he he was without sin. He still hears us. He still sees us. He still remembers and he still knows. What else could we do then but to, by faith, As we said in the beginning, the curtain of darkness is being peeled back just a little bit more. To show us the light that we may understand. And we're never going to completely understand, but we understand enough. Again, he's pulling back the light that we understand that there are no quick fixes. We cannot fix ourselves or the world around us. The flesh is no help at all. We understand here that we see that we need an education that only the Lord can give, and it often comes through every facet of our lives. But we also know that our Heavenly Father knows that he knows us, and he is with us. That he knows our plights, that he knows our struggles. He knows your failures, and he knows your sufferings. He knows your persecution. He knows your temptation. Yet in these last two verses in our passage this morning, we hear the implication that the Lord, he is clearly and truly on the move. And on the move in in Exodus chapter 2, he sent Moses to deliver his people. But even greater, we know the Lord is on the move because he has sent his graders, the greater, his son, to deliver us from the greatest of enemies, from sin and death. But that's not all, brothers. We've already, sisters, we've already alluded to it, that it's also pointing us to the very fact, the very truth, that He will send us His Son again, and He will deliver us again once and for all. Where there will be no more death, there will be no more pain. There will be no more loss. There will be no more sickness. And no more sin. Only joy only happiness, and only delight in the glory and the light of Christ. And as we already sang in our song this morning, are you waiting in your sorrows for this broken world to heal? He is coming, soon returning. Rest in him. We will see him, we will know him, Oh, what heights of grace revealed from his kindness, every promise then fulfilled. And all God's people say,